And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. It's been a hot minute since I've had a guest on the show and I can think a few people to kick off a series of interview episodes again than Tim Schneider. I had the great pleasure of meeting Tim about two years ago through a leadership advance program here in Las Vegas that is that is sponsored by the Vegas Chamber, the Vegas Chamber of Commerce. Tim is larger than life man. He has been in the leadership business for decades. And it came after having been a young man going through business and seeing that there was something really missing. There was something missing in the leadership that he saw and he felt uniquely drawn to actually change the dynamic he saw. Now, about halfway through our conversation, I started noticing something. I started noticing that as Tim was talking about his evolution from his first corporate life into his life in leadership, something that happened very early in his career, early in his career when he made the choice that working for other people wasn't gonna work for him, the choice that he would be the master of his destiny. I started noticing that he was talking about we, as he was talking about building the business. And so I got curious about that. And what's interesting is that Tim's leadership, his sense of leadership is so deeply rooted in service to others, that he thinks of things in the we, that his role is about the people he supports. His leadership isn't about him. Tim is a man who has learned patience and humility, and one of the greatest teachers for those lessons has come from the dogs in his life. I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. Tim Schneider, Aegis Learning, is the name of the company through which you and I became familiar. Um, I uh, leadership training and education, um, organizational transformation. This is the world in which you play. But before we dig into all of what leadership means and all of that juicy stuff, I want to start with you where I start with all of my guests here, which is an impactful memory, an impactful memory in your life of the influence of an animal. How old were you and what was it? Uh, I, I am so fortunate in life, Kathy. I've been around animals all of my life. Uh, the one uh, that sticks out, and I was probably eight years old, is my dad got wind that there was a stray beagle dog that was dropped off at a truck stop uh, somewhere in western Nebraska, and he packed me and my mom up, and we went down and met said scared, abandoned baby beagle dog, and she became my constant companion for uh, almost, I think, all, through my first or second year of college. Uh, and, and she and I were absolutely inseparable, 
and uh, yeah, still have the uh, the fondest memories of her. Great, great dog. Not the brightest berry in the world. Uh, she would stick her nose into a wheat field, and you could, you know, you, if she caught scent of a rabbit or something, she was just gone. But great, great dog. Great dog. Now, so you were about eight years old, and what was her name? Her name was Cleo. Uh, dad let me name her. I picked out that name and I don't know where it came from or why, but it stuck. It worked. And Cleo was, uh, Cleo was my, uh, we certainly had dogs, um, uh, before that, uh, dad always had, uh, stock dogs, but Cleo was mine and, uh, constant companion. So is there a particular moment with Cleo a particular experience that you had with her that just sticks in your memory? Yeah, there is. And, 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 it, and it is that moment that we first met her because she was terrified. She was small. Uh, you know, she had no idea, you know, what was going on around her. She had obviously, there were some signs. I mean, my dad shared this with me. There were some signs of abuse uh, with her. Uh, she was just, just, terrified and so small and you know we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into but man did it work out beautifully i i'll I'll remember that view of her she was in a a bay uh a a truck repair bay uh when we saw her and uh for the very first time and uh, yeah that's as clear as day can't remember what i had for breakfast but i can remember that (laughs) i miss my i misplace my keys on a regular basis so there's that also so that moment, that moment of connection and, and kind of experiencing this little being that was so that was so terrified. Um, what's the lesson that you take away from that? Uh, you know, the, there's a couple. Uh, the lesson of patience. Uh, the lesson of understanding the importance of, uh, at, a, at a very early age, understanding the importance of healing, uh, especially in something. Uh, like a dog who is nonverbal that can only express themselves through certain nonverbal uh, cues and things like that out there. Uh, and it was, I mean, it, it was very clear that it, the Cleo was my charge and it was uh, up to me to take care of her. Uh, and that was much more than just the feeding and the, you know, outside and the playtime. It was those uh, emotional needs and, and those, you know, getting her uh, emotionally and, and mentally uh, healthy again needs. Uh, it, it was all about those things. So you didn't start out as a leadership guru. You, um, you were in banking and finance for, for a good long time when, well, I can, I mean, I can know when I can look at your CV and see when you made the shift. I guess the question is, what was it that led you to that, to that shift? Well, uh, you know, some people uh, are led to greatness and other people are kicked off the ledge and forced into doing something meaningful in their lives. And I am the latter. I was forced off the ledge. Uh, I came to uh, Nevada in 1990 to work for uh, a small, or actually it wasn't small, it was a pretty good sized savings and loan uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada by the name of Primarit Bank. And uh, Kenny Gwynn was the CEO and he recruited me out of Arizona to transform their Uh, consumer lending division. And we had done such a magnificent job that we became attractive to purchase from Wells Fargo. 
and they did. They purchased us, and uh, uh, with that purchase came uh, becoming obsolete uh, at age 32. And uh, I decided at that moment in time that I would no longer allow anybody to determine my own paycheck except me. And for the last 30 years, it was 30 years in uh, February of this past year, uh, I have run my own ship, my own company, and uh, uh, would not change a thing about that. So so making the choice to to be the master of your own destiny is one thing. To choose to go into something specifically like leadership training is another thing entirely. So when did that when did that clarion call or siren call perhaps better better to say yeah, the uh, my educational background was always directed uh, that way. Uh, e- even during the time that I was working at uh, the bank, I was teaching uh, classes at the community college, uh, wrapped around business management, leadership, customer service, things like that. Uh, so I had uh, p- put my toe into that water, and, and and you know, and certainly my. Uh, the education piece was all focused towards organizational development and uh, and 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 my post uh, graduate work uh, was wrapped around that and I continued that after uh, I left the banking world as well too so what were the steps so it's I mean there's so many different paths to take so many different uh, ways to slice it. What was it about the particular? So you have a lot of grounding in DISC, uh, DISC assessment and DISC analysis, which maybe, I mean, most of the people who are listening to this probably knows what that means, but perhaps you can give kind of a, a quick Cliff Notes primer and how why that particular format really landed for you and, and, and how you chose that direction. Well, in, in bigger, broader terms, uh, I was first exposed in the uh, late 80s and early 90s to personality and and assessment tools. And the DISC model, which is based on Marston's model of behavior, uh, William Marston uh, was a leading uh, psychoanalyst of the Freudian school. He originally uh, found three archetypes, three major types of personality, uh, later redefined into four. And it appealed to me, although we... Uh, certainly have engaged and worked with other instruments over the years, uh, Myers-Briggs types assessments, uh, predictive index. I mean, you name it, we've had exposure to it. But the DISC model in terms of resonance for people, people understanding it, people being able to utilize uh, the data in it, and the technological advances that they've made over the last decade or so by introducing adaptive testing and some variety of things like that have made it a really, really powerful tool for us to use in conjunction with our leadership and team development work that we do. One of the things that, you know, and you and I have spoken about this a little bit as I had the pleasure of going through uh, what I call kind of the like, you know, accelerated crash course Five month. I mean, the thing about really immersing in leadership is is immersion, right? You know, meeting once a month over the course of five months is um, is it requires people to be highly motivated, highly engaged to kind of keep in between. Um, there are so many people doing leadership. She says with air quotation marks. Now, um, what does the word mean to you? 
So uh, there's a couple of connotations that really jump out. Uh, the first one is uh, kind of the easy one. It's the low-hanging fruit, I guess, if you will. And that is that leadership is a people business. Uh, management, uh, which is also a, you know, it's a science, it's a practice. Management is about things. It's about spreadsheets. It's about uh, analytics. It's about inventory. It, you, know, you know, it's about those things. Leadership is about people. It's about getting the most from the people that you have. It's about developing those people. It's about caring for those people. But it really is all wrapped around people centricity and the skills associated with getting the most from those people and, and doing it in such a way that they don't hate you. Uh, the other big connotation that I've always drawn from leadership is about being in that, that forward position. That, you know, that that taking the risk, bringing people along with you, uh, not by pushing them from behind, but by guiding them in a, in a forward position about being out there, uh, not worrying about who takes the credit or anything like that, but being out there in front and not being afraid to be out there in front. Because that can be, a you know, as you know, Kathy, that can be a lonely uh, proposition. That can be a scary proposition. But leadership is being about being out front. Yeah. Well, and the thing about leadership is that people aren't always going to like you. And as a leader, I have to be willing to pay the price, you know, to pay the price to retain my integrity and my rigor and my honesty and all of that. Like I have to be willing to say the really difficult thing, you know, damn the torpedoes in full steam ahead. Yeah, you're you're absolutely positively right. I, I and in fact, just no, as recent as an hour ago, I had that conversation with an executive that we're coaching. That he was very worried about two commenters on his 360 evaluation, which is a uh, a view that a lot of people uh, participate in rate. Uh, them in. He was very worried about two people that evaluated him low in a particular area. And I said, you know, stop. Not everybody's going to like you. I mean, it's, it's two it's out of how many, two out of how many? It was two out of 24. And, it, it, you know, and, and I, I, I wasn't even going to narrow it down any farther than that. And I said, you know, and, and we went through the entire litany about, you know, leadership is not popularity. It's about respect and credibility. And as you pointed out, holding on to your values. Uh, and you know what? Not everybody is going to lock on to that. And that's okay. Uh, not everybody's in the right spot either. And that's okay. So what about your own journey. So you were 32 years old and you're like, forget about this. Like nobody's going to tell me what to do. Um, what percentage of, of that was, um, shall we say strong headed young buck? And how much of that do you feel was, you know, the early stages of your leadership starting to show? Like if we had to wait, wait it out. Oh, that that's easy. 85, 15. Uh, without batting an eye, there, there, uh, that that was so much more bravado than than well thought through business planning. Uh, somewhere behind me, I do have our original. Uh, 1992 business plan in a notebook. Uh, I've kept it uh, over the years to remind myself of uh, where we came from. It was it was mostly all bravado, Kathy, and 
you know, the lessons learned along the way were absolutely priceless. Uh, the lessons learned along the way are paying dividends today. But uh, that early piece was uh, much more about, uh, I, I, I think I can, I think I can, uh, much more so than I know I can. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, mercifully, uh, the universe did align uh, for us relatively early. And uh, we were able to develop a uh, customer base. We were able to retain our uh, classes that we were teaching at the community college and even replicate some of those uh, regionally to other community colleges. So uh, we did okay, but there were there was a period of time that, uh, uh, you know, and I had two young children at the time as well, and there was a, a period of time that it, it, it was a little touch and go. Uh, my ex-wife, uh, recommended a couple of times that I actually look for real work, mm. uh, but I wouldn't budge. Now you, you have said we, um, many times. So you, did you, you didn't forge into this, uh, you didn't forge into the breach on your own. No, I did. Uh, I did, but, uh, relatively early on within the first year, uh, we added our first team member or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, both in supporting roles and in in in, in forward roles as well. Uh, a couple of our programs at uh, community college became so popular that we had to uh, have additional people. Uh, I had to have additional people working with me uh, to facilitate that. And over the years, I've been incredibly blessed to have some very very talented people uh, that have stuck with us and uh, hung around and, and gone on the journey. And I, it, it, it's not, you know, an easy one. And I, I have some extremely high expectations and thresholds for folks that want to go on this journey. So, uh, the folks that do hang in there and are successful have, have, uh, walked a pretty difficult, challenging path. Mm-hmm. I, um, it occurs to me in those early days, especially before you had any team members, you know, you're teaching a course um, and you're out there on your own and you're hustling and you're putting this plan together and you're this young buck and you're pushing through. There had to have been mo- moments of what the actual F am I doing? What, what, were, those, oh. what were those like for you? And what oh, did you do doubt. for yourself uh, to pull yourself through that? So uh, there was a strong uh, self-belief uh, and, and a strong set of resolve and a, set, a strong self-talk uh, that kept me going. But uh, those doubts crept in. I mean, uh, it, it was a common practice in those early days that I would get up at uh, 4 a.m. and usually with one or uh, probably my oldest child in tow. And we would take pick a part of town and we would hang at door flyers uh, in businesses uh, advertising the community college classes and other services we offered. And at that point, it was about all we could do to, you know, muster paying for the printing of those flyers. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there were a lot of times I'd said, what in the hell am I doing? I, 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 I could have some cushy branch manager job for B of A or something, uh, but I, I never gave up the self-talk. Uh, remained positive. Uh, I had folks around me, certainly, that uh, believed in me, believed in uh, uh, the path and the approach uh, that we were taking. 
and uh, always offered that encouragement. So that external encouragement was uh, very, very helpful. And I think one of the great object lessons there is uh, to always surround yourself with those people that will uh, encourage your dream, encourage your vision, and certainly not go out of your, their way to criticize it or say, what the hell are you thinking? Yeah. So where does that come from for you? Is this something that you learned? Um, you know, it sounds like from what you described, you grew up in a fairly rural setting. Um, most of my friends who grew up in rural settings come from fairly hardy stock as the saying goes. Um, perspectives on things are a bit different than in an urban setting where a lot of things are handed to you. There's a lot of like, you got to make this happen because the store is like 20 miles from here. So like, like you got to make this work. So how much of this is uh, just kind of environmental absorption from you and how much of this was, you know, very explicitly taught? Uh, uh, you know what? A great. I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm going to uh, credit my dad. Uh, he was a farmer rancher uh, who, you know, you're, you're watching your annual income uh, out in the field that is subject to the whims of the weather. Uh, the whims of climate change. Uh, he was certainly a risk taker. Uh, I, I credit him with the risk taking. I credit him with the entrepreneurial spirit. I credit him with the work ethic. Uh, you know, there were times that we would work around the clock when it was harvest season. And uh, he, he gets all that credit for uh, teaching that. Uh, I hated it in the moment, in live time, but uh, in retrospect, those were incredibly powerful, important lessons. What's one of the most powerful lessons that he taught you that you still carry? Uh, work ethic. It, it's it, I, and I can sum it up in in, in a incredibly simple rural euphemism. If there's if there's hay in the field, you stay out and cut it. I, if there's a crop in the field, you work until it's in. Uh, it doesn't matter what time of day, day of week, does not matter what else is going on in your life. If there's a crop in the field, you go bring it in. Yeah, because otherwise it goes to waste. It does. It does. Or, or the clouds that are on the horizon uh, wipe yeah. it out. So what about a humbling moment? A, mo a moment where you just got your ass handed to you I've had, I've had so many of those uh, in my life. I mean, it, it, it. Uh, life is a humble, a road of humbling journeys. I mean, I, there was a, uh, I, I, I could pick out literally dozens of them, but I, there's one professional one uh, that I can remember so painfully well. Uh, it was one of the very first big platform uh, speaking engagements that I ever had. It was at the Tropicana Hotel. Uh, conference uh, organizers uh, were expecting about 2,000 people to a keynote. Uh, you know, it, it, it was literally the first time uh, that I had a big audience platform like that. And uh, there were a couple of hiccups early on. Uh, you know, my, my the one technological request I always ask for when I speak is a, a wireless lavalier microphone because I don't want to be uh, encumbered by holding anything or anything else. That did not happen, but that was not the humbling moment. What the organizers forgot to tell me is that my speaking slot was absolutely coinciding 
with the happy hour that they had planned for their entire conference of 2,000 plus people. So what I ended up doing was talking in front of a room of a couple thousand drunks. And they were miserable and rotten and disrespectful and horrible. And it was all I could do. And the room was hot. It was all I could do to get through 45 minutes, you know, and, and it, it was just, it was terrible. It was a terrible experience. And, you know, I, I, I can remember pretty specifically driving home that day. You know, and, and, and at that point, my self-talk kind of went dark for a little while. And it was all about that, uh, you know, don't ever do this again. You know, stay in your lane, uh, teach small groups, work with companies in small groups, stay off this big platform thing. Uh, but it was an anomaly. I mean, it, it, it really was an outlier. But boy, at that moment in time, it was humbling and horrible. And uh, it, it wasn't a number of years uh, later, I also had a, a heckler in a in a group in Washington State. Uh, what ha- what happened? Ba- guy in the back of the room, crusty old nasty guy. He stood up and yelled, "I've been listening to this bullshit for thirty minutes," and I and he went on and on. And finally, a couple of the other participants in the back. Uh, it, it was a good sized group too. It, it wasn't in that. 2000 range, but it, it was pushing a thousand. A couple of other participants ushered him out. Uh, I later found out that uh, one of the conference organizers uh, told me that uh, the gentleman was known to mm. them and he was off his meds oh. that day. Oh. So, uh, anyway, for whatever reason, I was the blunt of him being off his meds that day. <laughs> well, I'm glad he wasn't in the front of the room. <laughs> well, I am too, and and, uh, and and certainly in the grand scheme of life, it wasn't a big deal. But, uh, you know, it's those kind of events you lock on to, and, you know, you pick out some lessons learned from all of those things and, you know, hopefully apply them forward, but, but never guaranteeing that it won't be replicated because, you know, we, we again, life has a way of kind of jumping up in front of you and, you know, th- things do happen. And, you know, part of leadership is being able to respond in a nimble uh, kind of mm-hmm. way and to use our wits about us and, uh, and, and, and dust ourselves off and go back at it. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, um, I've been thinking a lot lately, especially in the, the times that we seem to be in as a as a society, as a culture, as a you know business, and um, I'll use my usual disclaimer on that. On this, this is not a political statement. This is not a political conversation. This is just a state of human being. Let, let's just be clear. Um, one of the things that struck me, especially in the last, we'll say, week or so, um, watching people of all ilk um, kind of respond to things in the public in a public forum in a in a pretty um, powerful way, uh, lots of fear, one kind of por- portion being filled with fear and with anger and with fury and frustration and, you know, an- another group being filled with chest-pounding, gloating, ego-centered. And on this particular issue, it's weighted in one particular order. And on other issues in the past, the same exact responses have been weighted in exactly precisely the opposite order. So, 
you know, pick an issue, pick a day, and you have the sky is falling on one side and the you guys are idiots on the other side. So I'm curious about your perspective because the truth is, is that having emotion and having feeling is a critical part of being human. And to to fail to acknowledge fear, to fail to acknowledge like that people are scared, et cetera, et cetera, is, is I think an unreasonable and so when you think about this from a leadership perspective and think about what superb leadership looks like in in a world like today what is that what does that mean to you and how how do you how would you counsel your clients in that way well, anyway, and we do. I mean, uh, it's something that comes up, and you hit on almost a classic definition, Kathy, of what a good emotional intelligence is or what bad emotional intelligence is in the examples there. Uh, it is never, and you were so spot on on this, it is never the denial of emotion. We are emotional creatures. Uh, we can't just you know, pull down the shades and say, you know, emotion is not going to weigh into this. It's not going to play into this. It's part of us. It, it, it drives what we do. But emotional intelligence, especially in leaders, has to have some situational applications associated with it. Uh, you know, uh, we know that there is going to be some fear-based uh, responses to things, you know, whether that is anger, whether that is jealousy, whether that, you know, overwhelmment, whatever that is, we know that that's going to be there. But the art then becomes is after acknowledging that emotion, the ability to move on quickly from it and then into quality action. And I think that's the part, you know, as you do look at society uh, in a bigger, broader sense, I think that's what's missing. We get stuck in that fear-based reaction set. We don't move on into any kind of meaningful action behind it. And, and in all of the situations that you reference, there are paths of action that can be taken. But folks would rather, and it doesn't matter what side you're talking about, whether it's the, you know, the, the chest thumpers or the, you know, woe is me, the world's coming to an end, you know, whatever that is, they're not, they're not releasing that fear-based emotion and moving into a meaningful action uh, to help resolve. Uh, which is, you know, when we coach leaders and work with leaders, yeah, you can't pretend you don't have the emotion. You got to acknowledge the emotion. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm disappointed. You know what? I'm upset. I'm hurt. You know, whatever that is. But now you have to make that very mindful, conscious choice. I'm going to move behind that and I'm going to resolve to create some action that is meaningful behind that. What kind of, so, so that's great. And I think it's so like great in theory, um, what kind of practical advice, you know, irrespective of the content, there are practical um, processes that you can engage. What practical advice would you offer in that kind of scenario? So a piece of world news or neighborhood news or industry news drops, like a big bag of wet cement. And you've got People, you know, ah, rah, rah, rah. you know, people are like, oh my God, the world is ending and this is horrible and this is scary and those people are awful and look what they've done and those people are stupid and the other side's like, those guys are idiots and this is the right way and whatever it, as the leader of an organization like this um, or in a community, what are some practical steps? So uh, I'll, I'll translate that into 
a, a relatively recent experience, CEO in the healthcare field that we're working with, uh, has been working very, very hard to raise capital for his organization, part of a CEO type role. And as you know, though, there's been some market uh, fluctuations and downturns recently that have caused some great angst. And he was just absolutely beside himself uh, because what, what you know, a couple of years ago would have been a, an easy uh, capital market to raise that money in has become incredibly challenging, incredibly diff- difficult. Investors are sitting on their hands. And he was mad and hurt and scared and all those things. So the, the, the practicality to get out of that is the first thing we always want to do is uh, note and journal those emotions. Okay. As incredibly simplistic as that sounds, journal those emotions to acknowledge them because there's something kind of almost quasi magical that happens when you write them down. It's very releasing, it's very freeing. And then right behind that, create, and I had him do this last week create for me five quantifiable, measurable actions that you are going to engage in to get out of Mm. this. And within 24 hours, he came up with those five actions. Uh, I'm not in a position to evaluate, you know, whether those are effective or or not effective. Uh, I have to trust, you know, him that that they are. But uh, the important point is it got him out of that and into a movement mode. And then you can extrapolate that, you know, wider and broader, whether it's a family unit, whether it's a community unit, whether it's a, you know, a larger uh, kind of geopolitical subdivision and just say, okay, let's acknowledge what we're feeling. I mean, we, we can't run away from that. We're hurt. We're, we're upset. We're scared. We're whatever. Fine. Let's acknowledge that. Let's note that now. Let's immediately move into creation of a uh, straightforward action plan of things that we can begin engaging in right now uh, to to move forward and move out of that. Well, and I think I um, I love what you've just said. And I think that people, uh, what's I think also important to, to highlight in that scenario is that those actions don't have to be we're changing company strategy. We're changing our logo. We are buying a new division. It could literally be, you know what? The people on the team are feeling bad. Let's go get a big sheet cake and bring everyone into the cafeteria together or bring everyone into the public space together to just sit down for 20 minutes and have like cookies and milk or cake and coffee or just some sort of connection. Like it can be something simple. It can be, I'm going to go take a walk around the block and take 10 deep breaths. I'm going to add into my daily practice a brief break during the day to go get fresh air. And I think that people often think that it's supposed to be these big, lofty, strategic, wah, wah. And sometimes the answer is super simple and right in front of you. Yeah, you're you're absolutely spot on. Uh, yeah, it is. And, and, and even when you're talking about uh, you know some of those uh, community-based or, or or more globally-based challenges. Uh, there are solution sets out there, uh, but you know staying in that point of anger, staying in that point of disappointment, isn't really going to help anybody. Uh, it is about creating a stream of uh, focused, uh, meaningful action out there that's going to end up winning the game. And, and that's what we do. I mean, we ultimately, when some, we look at somebody that's a successful leader, that's what we rely on them to do is to, yeah, you know what, this, this looks really bad, 
but I'm going to rely on you to guide us out with these action steps and, and get us moving in this regard. What of leadership that actually enjoys the instability because it's what keeps them in power? At least it's what they perceive it's what keeps them in power. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, public public figure leadership has really devolved. And I want to make sure I emphasize that word devolved into who has the most inflammatory language uh, and who can get the, you know, the, the, the most media attention, whether that's, you know, traditional media or social media, who can get the most media attention rather than being solution focused, which is what real leadership is about. It's, you know, real leadership is not interested about, you know, the five o'clock news or their Twitter following. Uh, Real leadership is about crafting solutions and crafting answers that have value. So I want to bring up a topic because it's a word that we have, um, it's a word that we have used quite a bit in our conversation today and it has come up and I think it is the, uh, it is the weed that pervades pretty much everything today. Um, I had the great privilege of sitting for lunch the other day with a, a longtime friend. I've known him from Silicon Valley, followed by the name of John Hagel. Um, he's been in business and management consulting for a number of years. Um, Deloitte, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, whole thing. So he just wrote a book with this title. The Journey Beyond Fear. Is that showing up backwards for you? Is my video mirrored? Oh, it's showing up right away for you. Yeah, the journal beyond fear. So what's interesting is that pre-pandemic, John actually um, was, you know, consulting with CEOs and C-suite executives as he has done and found that behind the closed doors, these executives were all terrified. They were terrified. And... They weren't doing anything about their own experience of fear. They weren't processing it. They were kind of, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead, forging gamely forward. And that fear, because the fish stinks from the head, the fear was pervading through the entire organization down to front line. And so he'd been thinking about, he's been thinking about this book for about four or five years now. And um, then the pandemic hit and some things happened. And um, he has since wrote the book. The book came out just about, just about a year ago. Um, and he talks about the imperative of addressing going beyond this fear in order for business to shift. Because if we continue on the path that we're on and we don't address the fear and call it forward and give all people the space to to have their feelings, have your feelings, punch a pillow, scream into a pillow. What was it Mr. Rogers used to tell us to do? Pound some clay, run very fast, run very far, you know, bang all the keys on the piano at the same time. I mean, these are things that we learned as children in terms of how do you manage your emotions, that you don't just hit Johnny in the head with the shuffle, you use your words and, right? And and somehow along the way, like these grown-ass humans have started acting like petulant two-year-olds that never learned how to control their feelings and they're tanking companies and they're destroying families and they're ruining economies. So as someone in the catbird seat, as it were, you know, in a position to really kind of see the view, what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, uh, first of all, I, I, yeah, your friend is absolutely spot on. Uh, and, and, and really, about the only thing that I can add to that is there is a generation, and mercifully, uh, they are aging out in, in a lot of respects, but there's a generation that has led, historically led corporations from the CEO and the C-suite uh, and the board uh, level that, you know, acknowledging emotion was an absolute incredible sign of weakness. And, uh, you know, you just didn't do that. So first of all, a ton of them are experiencing it, feeling it, but would not say a peep to anybody about it, which creates, as you know, creates a, you know, kind of a volcano, an inner, inner churning volcano kind of action. And then when they do uh, kind of have enough, it just kind of comes in this upchuck of emotion, which is, you know, grossly inappropriate, leads to bad decisions and bad choices. Uh, the, the, the good business leaders out there uh, were uh, pretty open uh, during the pandemic and, you know, saying things like, you know what, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I've never seen this before. I've never faced this before. Uh, I'm scared. I'm nervous. I don't know uh, what's going to come back. I don't know what of our base of team is going to come back. I don't know what base of our customers is going to come back. Uh, they acknowledged it. But then, uh, right behind acknowledging it, they were able to kind of move on from it. The ones that struggled the most were the ones that, you know, as you described, just had that incredible paddling trip on the river in Egypt where they just said, no, no, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be normal. Everything's going to be exactly the same. Uh, you know, and, and even post-pandemic, Kathy, those are the same leaders that struggled believing that, you know, they could lean over and flip on a light switch. And the world would return to, uh, you know, 2018, and everything would be just the same. They're the leaders that are calling everybody back into the workplace, for, you know, regardless of the fact that that's kind of a ridiculous thing to do right now. Uh, they're requiring people to work in the office where, you know, there's really not any kind of business model or case that supports that. But they're the ones that were just absolutely in denial that anything was, you know, anything was wrong they had to have that that stiff upper lip and they couldn't ever acknowledge those fears or uh, uh insecurities or anything like that so where from here uh, from here you know uh, I, the one thing that you know certainly over the last six months to nine months that 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 we have stressed above and beyond everything else with uh, in coaching and in group sessions and all that is leaders have got to be flexible, changeable, dynamic, uh, and, and, and they've got to be significantly more responsive to the needs of their team. Uh, you know, it, it, it shifted, as we've seen overnight, from a buyer's market where it comes to talent to a seller's market when it comes to talent. And only those organizations that, that offer the, the, the vision-driven flexibility, the vision-driven people-centeredness, only those organizations are going to be the ones that survive and thrive in the coming few years. Here we are, the end of another episode. So sad. But it's not really, because there is an entire library of Talk Unleashed podcast episodes you can enjoy, and a whole bunch more yet to come. Make sure you don't miss any. Subscribe, follow, heck, 
Set up a carrier pigeon network if you like. Whatever it takes, just make sure you don't miss any of these conversations. And since conversations do require dialogue, meaning two, meaning back and forth, I want to hear from you. Who would you like to hear from? What topics would you like to hear addressed? Drop a line to talkunleashed at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Catch you next week.